0: I want to speak this morning to those of you who may be walking in Judas's sandals today. There has been a moment there has been a time in your history when you have done something very wrong. Something that constituted a betrayal of the right, a betrayal of relationship a betrayal of God and the purpose for which you were made. And you are now deeply remorseful about it. You feel the pain of it. You may not speak of it publicly very often. You may have never spoken of it publicly, but it lives with you. You wish you could take it back. You wish you could hit the reset, the reboot, the start over button, but you can't. You can't. And the feeling of remorse haunts you. The feeling of condemnation is with you. And the voice of the accuser, even when you try to forget this reality, keeps speaking in your inner temple saying, you made a choice, you can't undo it, it is your responsibility. And the clang of condemnation rings like those silver coins scattering across the floor of the inner temple of your life wherever you go. And you think to yourself, I just can't be forgiven. You may not have gone out and literally hung yourself like Judas did. But, obviously you haven't, you're here this morning. But you may be hung up. You may be hung up nonetheless in other ways. I have a friend now of more than 20 years who while he was a teenager killed his best friend it was one of those unthinkable horrible tragic accidents and in a flash his friend was gone and he was responsible and, and, and he's lived with this for so long. At the time that it happened, he, he was seized with tremendous grief over this. He, he went sobbing to the parents of the other boy. He told them how sorry he was, how bitterly, bitterly sorry he was. And they wept with him. They felt the pain with him. And in amazing grace, they reached out to the boy and they offered him words of forgiveness. And his own parents embraced him. And the funeral was held. And after the funeral, everyone behaved as if this might be enough. His mom and dad said, in effect, it happened, you're sorry, it's been forgiven. We will speak of it no more. Failed, flailed, forgiven, forgotten. That was the formula. And it sounded good. Only for my friend, it was not enough. He really needed... More help than this. He really needed some place he could process the terrible feelings that he had, the remorse, the self recriminations that he felt. But they would speak of it no more. And though he wanted to get to the point where he might somehow forgive himself, he just could not. And as a result, uh, this young man tried to make up, he tried to, to do penance for what had happened by living the most spectacularly perfect life possible. And in this incredible life of overcompensation, in a sense, he went on to try and live a life that involved no mistakes anymore. He would be perfect now, and even when he made mistakes, he would not face the mistakes. He would not acknowledge them and admit them and confess them and deal with them for fear of not being a perfect boy. And he made a lot of mistakes still. (laughs) Why? Because he was a human being still. And he went on to achieve many, many great things. But his leadership and his relationship were never what they could have been. At least they haven't been to this day. Because I think he was unable to be the human being, flawed human being, living under grace that other people need. And many people just could not like him and could not love him and could not follow him in the way he longed for it to happen because he was unwilling to admit his failings and his flaws. And I think it could have been different if he'd somehow been helped to forgive himself for what happened on that dark day. When we do not forgive ourselves, it really has consequences, uh, really significant consequences. It can mutate into the kind of reality-denying, perfectionistic overcompensation that I've been talking about. It can display itself in this lingering listlessness or this sense of of pervasive sadness that exists under the surface of your life just robbing you of joy, of hope, and just numbing you in a sense to the possibilities of life. It may lead you to say, what the heck? I'm a Judas, so I might as well just keep on doing bad. It can take you to a place of unconscious self-loathing that leads you into these self-sabotaging patterns. Every time you just seem to be climbing up and things seem to be going well, you, you sabotage it in some way because you have inside the sense, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve happiness. It can lead you to self-destructive habits, I have actually seen it lead some people I know to the end of a literal rope. So that's why I got to ask you this morning. Is there anything that you're still living with that hurts terribly that you've just not been able to forgive in your own self? Was it some sin of commission or some sin of omission that may be hanging you up? If if that's true for you, I, I just want to suggest four or five steps you might take. Or if you know somebody who's in this place, steps they might take to work your way or their way towards that place where that glorious word can hang over our heart and liberate our life, that great word, forgiven. The first suggestion I would make is this one. Don't forgive yourself too easily. I know that may sound counterproductive or counterintuitive or counter what I seem to be trying to talk about this morning, but I want to say it again, don't forgive yourself too easily. Lou Smeads puts it this way, if forgiving ourselves come easy, then chances are we are only excusing ourselves, ducking blame, not really forgiving ourselves at all if you're self-aware enough, if you're self-conscious enough about sin, if you're concerned about God and about other people enough, then some part of you ought to ache, ought to hurt, ought to struggle with the remembrance of the wrongs that you have done. As Greg reminded us last week, a broken and a contrite heart is what God does not despise. A broken, a, a, a contrite heart. God, God actually cherishes. I still ache, I know, over many, many failures in my life. I know I've been forgiven by God and by others of so many things, but I, I still feel it. I still feel an awareness of those sins of commission and omission in my life as a parent or as a son or as a husband or as a friend. Even in my work As a professional, I think back to the early 20s of my life. I was 24 years old. I was just a young pastor in training. I was assigned responsibility to go to a particular hospital and visit down this list of people. And as I was going from one person on my list to another, there was a person in between, not on the list. I stopped. He looked haunted. I approached the bed. I sat down. I said, what's going on for you? And he told me this amazing story, this tragic story, this awful story of how he had left his wife for this younger woman and then his wife, who had tried to repatch the relationship, uh, finally gave up and then he turned all of his attention to the mistress and the mistress dumped him. And he tried to go back to his wife and he couldn't. And he saw the wreckage he had created in his wife's heart, in his kid's life, the loss of the home, and remorse overtook him. And he tried to kill himself. That's why he was in that hospital. And I listened to his confession. And I prayed for forgiveness. And it brightened him up, and I could see the load lifting. And he said to me, will you promise you'll come back and see me again? I'd like to talk more. And I said, I absolutely will. I've enjoyed this time together. I'll be back on Saturday. And I got distracted. And I forgot. And he checked out of the hospital. And he went to his mistress's apartment. And he stabbed her 19 times. And he killed himself. There are some things we bear that are not easily forgiven. There are some some things we bear that will take a lifetime in a sense for us to process and to be freed up from even where God and others have offered us grace. We don't resolve these parts of our stories by taking them lightly. Be very wary of people who walk around proclaiming how they've forgiven themselves. I know I was drunk and I ran over your grandmother but I have forgiven myself Be wary of people who do this too lightly. As Lou Smedes observes, at the end of the day, there are only two parties that have the authority, really, to issue a self-forgiveness license. And those two parties are as following. The person that you injured, or persons, and God, secondly, who made those people And who made you? Those are the only two that have the authority to issue the license. And that is why we spent our time focusing last week on how we go to somebody else and ask for forgiveness, (laughs) ask for the license in a sense. It's why it's so important that we actually take the initiative to pursue that kind of interaction with those that we have injured. It's always easier to forgive ourselves if we've actually been given that permit through the grace and forgiveness of some other person. Sometimes, as you know, however, the other person's not willing to forgive. Sometimes they're not even around to forgive. I will never be able to go back to that guy in the hospital bed and ask for his forgiveness. or the forgiveness of the woman he stabbed. That's why I'm grateful that God also issues permits. I'm so grateful that he does. And it's in those kinds of difficult circumstances that the grace he offers to a genuinely broken and contrite heart is something we just have to work to claim for ourselves. In doing this, in this claiming process, there's this second principle that I hope you'll remain mindful of. Don't let your pride inflate the significance of your sin. I know it's true. I've just said it. Some people make far too little of their failures, but there are also people, you might be one of them, who make far too much of their failures. Listen to what one remorseful man wrote uh, in his diary. "'I have done nothing,' he writes. "'My life has been spent in vain and idle aspirations.'" And in ceaseless, rejected prayers that something should be the result of my existence beneficial to my own species. Obviously, this guy has done nothing with his life. It's been just one unbroken chain of failures and and defeats and sins after another. That's obvious from those statements, that statement, right? Do you know who wrote that? John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of these United States a congressman, a senator, a president, a diplomat, you really think his life was an unbroken waste? That God's grace never broke through any place? Or consider these words of Hugo Grotius. The last words that he ever spoke, they were on his deathbed. He said, I have accomplished nothing worthwhile in my life. That certainly was true except for the small fact that he founded the entire modern international law system, by which commerce and, and much of our international relationships go on today. Sometimes when we read these kinds of comments, sometimes when we say these kinds of things ourselves, My, I'm evil, I'm a, I'm a loser, I've done nothing right, It sounds like we're being very humble. It sounds like we're being that broken and contrite heart we talked about just a moment ago. But you know what? It's not that. These kinds of statements are not humility. They are a form of insidious pride. These individuals were so ambitious they could not content themselves with being merely human with being merely human beings living within the grace of God. They could not acknowledge that his grace was working its way out in some part of their life. Please don't do that to yourself. Don't do that. Take your sins seriously but don't define the value of your entire life by where you have failed. Give glory to God for all of the ways in which he has triumphed and can still triumph in your story. St. Paul sinned, terribly. I mean, this guy arrested people, dragged them out of their homes, threw them in prison, had them tortured to to, to the point of despair or death itself. He presided at lynchings of people whose only crime was to follow the God of love. He was a ruthless murderer. He was a scoundrel. He's the kind of person we would throw in Guantanamo. And yet, This is what he writes to the Ephesian church in chapter 3. He dared them to keep seeking him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. He'd seen the triumph of God's grace even after that long story, even after the wandering of his youth and the errors of his adulthood. He'd seen the power of God's grace at work. You know, I don't think that Judas's greatest sin was what he has a rap for. What was it that made Judas such a bad guy? Well, he, he stole from the common purse of the disciples. I mean, the guy was a Was a fraudulent pilferer playing with the books. Yeah, he was that. He was that. He sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. My the Savior, he sold him out. Yeah, he did that. He definitely did that. It was very unthinkably awful. He was one of the major figures in leading to the brutal, bloody, agonizing death of Jesus on a cross. That was bad. (laughs) That was bad. But you know, his greatest sin was none of those things. I believe the greatest sin of Judas was not his decision to betray Jesus. It was his decision not to believe Jesus. You see, Judas was there. He was there. He had a front row seat on that day when in Jericho, Jesus invited Zacchaeus down from the tree. Do you remember after 9-11, how that American guy grew the beard and joined Al-Qaeda and was all the news and everybody hated him? Do you remember that? Raise your hand if you remember that story. Right? Remember how mad people were, how hateful they were towards this betrayer of our country? Zacchaeus was like that. Judas Iscariot would have seen Zacchaeus like that. Judas was a zealot. That means a patriot. And he saw Zacchaeus, who collaborated with the Romans and became a tax collector, as that kind of scum. And now, for a moment, Zacchaeus is seized with some kind of remorse and some sorrow over what he's done, and he's open to turning over a new leaf, and he comes down, and, and Judas feels in himself, I know that guy deserves to die for what he's done. But Jesus, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save What was lost. In other words, Zacchaeus, you have abandoned the Jewish family by becoming a Roman collaborator, but I see your sorrow. I see your readiness to walk in a new way. Welcome back to the family, for you are forgiven. Judas heard that. I don't think he believed it. Judas was there too when they they got that woman, you know, the one who's been sleeping around and dragged her into into the square and, 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 and just pushed her to the ground like she deserved. Judas was there. He knew what she, she knew what was coming to her. She was about to become the center of her own personal rock concert. That was the penalty the law required for somebody caught in adultery. But Jesus stopped the crowd. Judas must have dropped his jaw. Jesus stopped the crowd. He asked them to look into their own hearts uh, to evaluate what they were guilty of in themselves. And then Jesus looked at the sorrow of this trembling woman and he said, neither do I condemn you. Go. Leave your life of sin. I don't think Judas believed it. That she could be. Forgiven like that? Judas was there when he heard Jesus tell the story about that no good son who had it so good, but who who, who rebelled against his, his parents, humiliated his dad publicly, took, in a sense, half of the fortune of the family and wasted it all, and then came home thinking... He might get a job maybe as a slave and start again in the family household. Judas heard that story from the lips of Jesus, and he knew that son had not a chance. And then, then, he heard Jesus say this, that when the father saw the grief over what the son had done, When he saw the son's willingness to be a slave, if that's what it took to begin again, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it, let's have a feast, and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again, he was lost, and is now found. I just don't think Judas believed that it was really possible for somebody who had failed so badly to be forgiven, to be forgiven by God, by others, and even themselves, and start again. And so, when he failed, he hung himself. Here's the key question. What do you believe? What do you really believe? At the end of the day, is this universe really all about keeping the rules? About who racks up the most moral merit badges? Who gets the best test score on the righteousness exam? In other words, do you think at the end of the day it really is all about Religion? Or do you believe Jesus? Do you believe that the one thing required is a broken and a contrite heart and a willingness to trust not in your own righteousness but in the grace of God and to begin again? What, in the depths of your being, do you want to build your future on? Here is the deal. If Jesus is not telling the truth about the heart of God, then go ahead, hang yourself, remain hung up. If Jesus is is a liar about this, if your record is really the only thing that's going to gain you love and forgiveness in the end, go ahead, find a rope someplace, get some extra. I may need it too if that's the truth. But if Jesus was right about how outrageous is the grace of God, then you and I, my friends, have got something to believe in. You and I have a message this world, and people we know need to hear. We've got something to live for. We can forgive ourselves, and we can move on. And so this is the third step you may need to take. Dare to believe Jesus' words. Dare to believe him. It has been my experience that it's hard to do this. It's hard even when you hear it. Even if you come to church and you read it in the Bible, it's hard to keep it in your mind. This outrageous grace of God Even when we hear the truth a lot, we have this way of of in other moments being convinced by the voice of the accuser attacking us, you're responsible. There's no going back. There's no getting out of it. It belongs to you, this crime. And this is why if you want to really forgive yourself, then there's this fourth step I'd recommend. Make it a priority. Make it a real priority in your life to commune with other forgiven sinners. I don't mean just be in a room with them. I mean, get to know them. I mean, share stories with them. I mean, confess and listen to their confessions and let them remind you of the truth we can believe in together. It seems to me that this was the critical difference between Judas's fate and Peter's. Think about this these guys were a lot alike. They were both strong, passionate, zealous men. They were both highly gifted, highly committed people. Both of them betrayed Jesus profoundly, profoundly. And yet one, Judas, became isolated and alone, and he died that way. And the other, Peter, Stayed in the company of the other fallen disciples long enough to find the grace that he needed to become a new creation. King Solomon of Israel knew something about this too. He failed spectacularly in the course of his life, and yet he extolled in these words the value of having these kinds of partners. In, in in failure and in grace, though one may be overpowered, he writes, two can defend themselves a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And so I want to ask you, who are the people who serve as these strands tying you to God's grace? What are their names? Who are the trusty people who know your secrets? who know the painful sins of your past, who are honest about their own, who can help you believe, and you help them believe, in the redemptive love of God. We're out of time this morning, so here are the takeaways. Here are the things I hope you'll walk away with. If you really want to forgive yourself, Don't do so too easily. Prepare for a long journey. But don't let your insistence on being perfect, your flagellation over the fact that you messed up badly, I mean, maybe tragically and awfully and miserably and criminally even, don't let your insistence on being perfect inflate the significance of your sin. Thirdly, dare to believe the words of Jesus. Keep repeating them to yourself. Keep speaking them to others about God's willingness to forgive a broken and a contrite heart. Commune with other forgiven sinners. And finally, as we'll explore much more on Easter morning, I can hardly wait to get there. Finally, go on out and just start to live as one who has forgiven themselves, even if you haven't done it fully. Just go out and start living like somebody would if they believed that the God of this universe, the one person with the authority to issue the permit, had said over your life with joy and hope this word, Forgiven. Amen.